Dean Swift pub in Shad Thames within view of Tower Bridge. Uh, I'm Andrew Harris and I do the Mayor Brown Sword podcast with Andy Mayer. Hello, Andy. Hi, Andrew. And uh, we've just had a fantastic presentation from Mike Cooper of Morningstar. Hello, young man. Thank, thank you very much. Um, Andy, I've got a, one question first. Did you know this pub is named after Jonathan Swift? the writer of A Modest Proposal, which said that starvation could be cured by eating babies. It was one of the great works of satire. There you go. That's it's a, not a book I've read recently. Not no. you've read late, but one of, his, one of his famous quotes is, a wise man should have money in his head, but not in his heart. Does that sound right to you? No. No, all right, fair enough. <laughs> He's got money in his heart as well. So we've got, um, we've got fantastic questions from uh, and Andy's uh, clients, which have been sent in by email. I've got a few to start off with, but then we can open it up to the room as well, if people have got questions. And I know some people are very keen to ask questions. No, no, he doesn't want to. <laughs> right, let's start, with, let's start with Mike. So everybody in this room knows that one of Andy's recurring refrains is that you should pay it on a monthly basis and never change what you pay. Always be steady. Don't be chasing changes in the market. Always be kind of paying in the same amount because that way you dodge all kinds of irregularities in the market. What's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, last year was a really good example of the trap you can easily fall into. I remember we had conversations with people in about, I think it might have been July, where we were oh, yeah, I, get really, I get a really good return on cash, but it's been like at, at least as high as the markets this year. Why don't I just put all my money in cash? And then they missed out on the rally that happened for the rest of the year. So, and he's, you know, it's absolutely spot on. It's a really good guidance. Just don't try and be too clever. Yes. Even things out with regular payments. Is that what you do yourself in your own financial Indeed dealings? It Indeed it is. Yes. Is it? I mean, because as a man with much greater depth of knowledge of what's going on in the market, is it harder for you to keep your nerve than, say, somebody like me, who's just looking at an app on the phone and, and getting the fear? Well, I think we're all humans, aren't we? I mean, everyone, everyone is affected by um, emotions and the media and what they see around them. Uh, so it's, it's, it's impossible not to have that potentially affect you. We try and erect a whole series of processes and barriers to prevent that. Um, I mean, there are certain ways of presenting information that works against that. But yeah, I think it's natural for everyone to think that. What's your own kind of pension strategy, your own sort of future investment? Basis. It's the multi-asset fund that you know um, we run for our clients that Andy talked about. Um, it's diversified. It's got enough shares to give it good returns. It's tilted towards things that offer really good value. Um, it has a range of good diversifying investments. Uh, I know exactly what's in there. I can see the price every day. There's no funny business. Yeah. You know. Um, so in the time, in the 35 years I've been investing, you know, simple has always worked out better. How active is it? Does much happen in that fund, or is it a Warren Buffett job where you buy something in 1973 and you never touch it? Well, I think we don't want to change things unless we feel there's a benefit to doing so. Yeah. And so we every you know, every month we look at the world and go, how much have things really changed? And we need to be convinced that things have changed quite a lot before we are going to want to make changes that we think will improve things. So in the last few years, we probably changed things. I don't know, three times a year, maybe four times. You know, for other strategies that we've been running uh, like this, um, it used to be less than that. Probably will be maybe once a year. But the reality is, markets are moving a heck of a lot more than they did before, and that's created some great opportunities. But it's also meant that we've had to be nimble when things have gotten very hot, and we want to be able to cash out. So it's really a function of is it worth it, yeah. and be slow to make the changes. Uh, and, and, and if you're selling something, then you have to find something that's much better than that. Um, in order to replace it. Yeah. How about you, Andy? What's your kind of um, your personal approach? That's why I sort of preach about it. I've, since I've been doing this job 30 years, I've always think if you can pay somebody in every month, you take advantage of when it goes up and when it goes down. 
And I think when you start when I started in this industry, it was very easy to trace something. So when the Daily Mail says buy gold, you know it's a wrong time to buy gold. Yes. And I just think if you literally take a patient approach, but the reason I like paying in on a monthly basis, it's a discipline for me and has been all of my life that you go, I'm going to pay in this month, pay in next month. And when the markets drop, you can see some really great bonuses at the end. And I think having done this, the people who've been really successful financially might start with a look where they're paying £50 a month, £500 a month, it doesn't matter. But when the markets drop, they're taking advantage of it. And it was when COVID happened. Andrew, you've got us doing these podcasts. And I didn't know when the bottom of the market was, and I know Mike didn't. But what we knew is, at some stage, it would bottom out. And the people who were buying in on a monthly basis would make some really good returns. Yeah. And I've seen it over the 30 years of this business. Buying in on a pound cost averaging is massively beneficial. Yeah. I mean, the main, main reason I got you doing the podcast during COVID was that I just needed somebody to talk to, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's very boring in my house. Um, it's interesting you were saying that with the male advertisers get into gold, get into gold. How many people in the room live in London? Right, okay. Have you seen that bus that was flying around that said, if it's when you see crypto advertised on the side of a bus, it's time to get into crypto. And I thought, it's exactly the opposite of the time. <laughs> if it's on the side of a bus, there's no way you want to get in, involved in that. Um, Mike, last year was, you just alluded to this, last year was really volatile uh, in, uh, in the market. We saw the stock market rally in January, later on in the year it rallied as well. What Andy's just been talking about in terms of staying invested. If you're not careful, you can miss out the best 10 or 30 days of the year by coming out. Was 2023 a good example of how you need to hold your nerve? I mean, every year is like that. I mean, it was particularly um, good example because people were really starting to think a lot about cash. Yeah. And then they got to see what they were missing out on. Like if they had delayed putting money into the normal investments or if they'd indeed cashed up. So I think that was a particularly um, vivid example of that. But every year it's a bit the same. It kind of works both ways. You can get too enthusiastic. We do this analysis on flows where we go, um, where we go, we look at, okay, when you, here's the return you get from buying and holding an investment. Now, what if I adjust that return for when people put their money in and when we take their money out? And the study is called Mind the Gap. And guess what happens? You have a lower return when you account for when people put their money in, because they put their money in at the wrong time, after it's gone up a lot, they feel very confident, and they take their money out after it's formed a lot. So timing generally makes people worse off. And that's why Andy was saying before is so spot on, just committing to a regular payment. You don't even have to think about it. And, and, and that gives a much better outcome. Right, okay. Um, Andy, the, the kind of $65,000 question, the one that everybody kind of tends to want to answer is, you know, it's the how long is a piece of string question. How much money do you need to retire? Is it possible to put a figure on this? A percentage of what you're earning? In financial services, it's the biggest question on the internet, how much do I need to have, what's my lump sum, what pot do I need in retirement? The question's totally wrong. It's how much do I need to spend? What do I spend? So if you live in, say, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, a million pound pot goes a lot more than it does if you live in Surrey. But it depends on your outgoings. So everyone has this idea that you need, sometimes people save too much and don't spend it. And then I call it leaving it on the table. They die and wish they'd spent more. So there isn't an definitive pot, but there's lots of different yields, 4%, 5%, 6% that you look at from a pot that you can use. But it's about what your spendings are. Most people have a fixed cost in terms of your heating, electricity, gas, maybe your food. Then it's discretionary, Spotify, Netflix, all that sort of stuff. And then in retirement, the bit that throws people is the high ticket items. Your holidays, six months in Maldives or wanting to go to the World Cup of Rugby. How long? Six months. <laughs> Isn't that what you told me you wanted to do? 
Well, not, not in this life, though. No. <laughs> but it is. It's the big ticket items that really affect people. But it's about what your spend is and what you want to do. And I don't think there's a definitive number. People try and get you to the million pound pot because it is an easy strap line. But it actually depends on what you spend. Yeah. And also, it depends on when you want to retire. Well, there was a, we did a really good edition of the podcast, which maybe some of you might have heard, with a, a behavioural economist called Sarah Newcomb. And she had a fantastic formula, which was just split, you know, divide, measure what you're spending, and it should be 30% for the past, as in things you've already Yeah, mortgages paid, and yeah. debt. 60% for the present, i.e. the running costs, heating, electricity, food, the occasional pints, and 10% for the future. And if you can stay within that. And her argument was, if you start at 10 and get to 20% for savings, you're set. And then she issued this great line. If you're doing 20% savings and you're reducing your debt, you can spend with impunity. I.e. don't feel guilt, because an awful lot of people have guilt about spending money. So it's a great way of looking at life. If you actually get to that point where you're saving 20% for your future, when you go out, you don't need to worry about what you're spending on. You can actually feel great about it. This is what I'm going to say to my missus. What are you doing tomorrow night? I'm spending with impunity. <laughs> this, this will be my, my get-out clause. We're going to get on to some questions that have been sent in in a second. But I just wanted to ask you, both of you actually really, since COVID, and the kind of shake-up in everybody's attitudes at the time. Have you seen people focus more on the short term? I think, I think, did it sort of shock them out of long-term planning? 100%. I think we used to sort of look at, you get more volatility now, as Mike has just said, in the short term. But too many people, one of the biggest questions I had last year in 2023, well, it hasn't done well in the first six months or seven months. But by the end of the year, the portfolios did remarkably well. And people were looking on the short term. What is your goal? Is your goal to retire at, say, 64, with an income of £45,000 a year? Are you on target for that? That's all you need to focus on the short term. I remember the great line from the Celtic manager a few years ago, Andy Postacoglu. Celtic lost two of the first six games. They were asking who was going to concede the league. They still won the league. It was a month into the season, and that's the investment journey. It's what your end goal is. That's what we need to focus on. I'm not sure I'm excited, Andy Postacoglu, right now, but never mind. We'll just, we'll just move on with that one. Never mind that. Now, look, uh, we've got questions that have been sent in by d different um, investors and clients of Andy, and I don't know whether you're in the room. Is Paul Richmond in the room? Paul Richard is in the room. Hey. I, I felt like I was being psychic there. It's Paul Richard in the room with us right now. So, Paul, your question was, which markets do you forecast will have good growth in 2024 and beyond? Are AI development companies to be invested in? Mike, yeah. what's big in 2024? Don't say flares. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you next year. Um, well, so for us, I think when we look at markets, it's a combination of two things. What's going to happen to their earnings? And then are they very undervalued or are they very overvalued? So with some of these fast-growing companies, they need to deliver this year because what happened last year was their price went up by far more than their earnings in anticipation of their earnings increasing. So for us now, and because that made them quite expensive, they've got to deliver. If they don't deliver, then there's a real risk we'd have in number um, 2022 when some of those high-flying stocks fell quite a lot. So that, for us, means it's not particularly attractive because they're now priced for very optimistic outcomes, which could happen, but if they don't, it could be, could be some damage. So for us at the moment, you know, we look at, we think the UK market actually has improved in value. It's quite a neglected market. Um, and there's you know, pockets here and there and overall, probably better than most of the other markets we can see. Within emerging markets, we think um, we've had positions in Brazil because it was very undervalued ahead of the election, concerns about the new president Lula. Um, and commodities, it has, it has essential commodities that the world's short of. Um, that you can get access to in the stock market and had a very undervalued currency. So we've had that. That's done pretty well. So we've probably been taking a bit of profits on that. Um, we uh, had investments in Germany, which we've taken profits on. We thought that there was, again, excessive pessimism on what was happening with the outlook for Germany and some of those auto companies. 
And then we um, have been looking into more China and whether that you know, is worthy of, of, of further investments. It's especially bashed up, but the more we talk and look at what's happened, it's like a pendulum swing where you get the government goes from being quite hands-off to being quite hands-on and then has to go back the other way again because it needs the economy to grow fast to keep people employed to basically control power. So it realizes these big companies are, who are the only part of the economy that's productive. The government parts of the economy are unproductive and they know it. So the pendulum swing back the other way towards those companies and supporting them, which would be very supportive in general. Um, so, so we think those are some of the pockets we're seeing. We, we've had outside of that emerging market debt. And a lot of those countries actually have less debt than developed countries. And they've been very careful about managing inflation. And that's been a really good return in, we've had you know, in the portfolio. So we like we think that's also going to be good going forward. Um, so those are some of the things that we're seeing at the moment. Um, another question. Do we have Raj Karamanchandani in the room? Raj, hello. You are here. Fantastic. A question you sent in. This is very dear to my heart. Post-Brexit, is the UK investable or are there better returns elsewhere in the globe? Well, for a period of time, just after the, the referendum, some global investors said that the UK was not investable. And the reason they said that was because they had no idea what was going to happen. So, you know, Brexit referendum was 2016. So here we are um, with actual arrangements in place that are enough for you to get a better idea what will happen. There's still a lot of, um, a lot of Brexit that's not been finalised, but there's enough for you to know how the rules of the game will, will be played. So that's actually attracting quite a lot of foreign investors who are acquiring and buying businesses in the UK because they've been bid up elsewhere. And you know, the UK is still, um, it's, it's one of the original markets with very reliable laws, with uh, underlying, well-educated, hard-working population. It's got scientific support and technology, and there's a lot of really great companies here. They've just gotten, unfortunately, at the same time, a situation where you know, if you're a company and you want to raise money, it's easier to raise it in the countries that have big pools of savings. And that's been more and more the case. And it was a time when the UK was a big, had a lot of savings. Pretty much the whole, all of the savings from Europeans would probably be channeled through the UK. And the UK stock market was where you want to list your company. But that's no longer the case. And then um, for various other reasons, like the fact that a lot of companies, they want to raise money from private investors, private equity funds, and that's become a much bigger way for companies to fund themselves. So it looks like the UK has slid down the kind of the, uh, the board of companies in terms of you know, who the winners are, the countries that you can go to. But actually, there's still quite a strong basis of investing here. So we don't think it's uninvestable. We think it's more investable than it was before. And in relative terms, there's, there's probably more interesting opportunities in terms of valuation. Raj had a follow-up as well, which uh, you sent in on email, which was, um do you see a global recession hitting in 2024? And if so, short and sharp or prolonged, what do you think? Yeah. So there was an interesting um, analysis done by, um, done by actually the Bank of England around its forecasts, um, where it's got the forecast totally wrong. And these are not just like a, a precise forecast. It's like a, a cone where it could be as low as this or as high as this. And then the outcome was like up here or like totally outside the range. The reason I mention that is when it comes to economic forecasting, um, and the IMF did a study of all private sector and all government forecasters, and what the conclusion they came to was, actually, people generally don't get recessions right. They generally either forecast recessions that never happen, or don't see the recession until you're in it. And the reason for that is the way a recession works is you get a crisis hitting the economy. What then happens depends upon how 
you and I respond in our own spending. What, what do we do? Our job, uh, how the business fares, the people who are running business make decisions, how politicians respond in terms of, of um, any further support or less support or central banks. And then it also depends on other countries, other things that are happening. So sometimes you get a shock and it doesn't transpire to be as bad as people were thinking. This time last year, everyone was like, yeah, there's definitely going to be a recession. You know, it's, it's highly likely. And all of those uh, projections were wrong. Now, it turns out they were wrong because people had saved more money in the pandemic than, 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 than people realized, and they had more of a buffer to live off. Um, and companies also were in a better position. So all I'd say is the forecast we put up before our base case, we don't think there's going to be a recession. And for investors, recession is one of those funny words. It doesn't really mean much. What, what's impactful is if, if I have a really big economic crisis where companies suddenly find their sales are falling out of their 20-30%. They cannot cut costs fast enough, and so their profits drop, and their profits drop by so much that their business is in trouble. Then they start, that's really the kind of downturn that, that has an impact. And even then, that sounds like a really bad scenario. Share prices, the earnings of companies might fall 20-30%, share prices will fall, but then what happens? Well, uh, you know, in the same way that tomorrow when you wake up, the sun, the sun will rise, um, Eventually, there's an adjustment and the economies grow again. So recessions, particularly in the post-Second World War, last anything from six months to three years. It's quite variable. And, the, and the how, much, how, how bad things get also vary from not much to quite a lot. So it's not a very useful term. And when we look at things, we can't see the degree of frailty that you usually need. And we can't see bad policy making, because you need bad policy making. When governments don't respond well to a crisis, or when there's things like conflict, which could happen, then those are the things that tend to exacerbate things. So that's why our uh, central case is not for a recession, but it is for, for weaker growth. If you've got a question you'd like to ask, please raise your hand. Anybody got any? If, if something comes to you, yes. You say you're never going to ask ah, any questions. Ah, there we go. What's your the question? Surprise question. Uh, there was a slide that was comparing Morningstar to yes. the rest of the world. Yes. And as it was going to 26, 27, 27, 28, there was a larger differential yes. between Morningstar and the rest of the market. What, what's that about? Just to repeat that for the sort of podcast listeners can understand that. As we get to 26, 27, 28, the difference, the, the, there's a divergence between the Morningstar forecast. Yeah. And the, what was the other component? Uh, it's a consensus. A consensus forecast. about it. So Morningstar yeah. away from the consensus, thinking independently. Why is that? Well, one, I couldn't tell you why each one of the competitors have their views. But what I can say is we do think that the, the developments of artificial intelligence are accelerating. So the way, the way it works is you get, let's say, the invention. That doesn't have any effect on anything. You then get the commercialization of that invention. That, so devices that can use that smart way of doing things, cars, whatever it is. But that doesn't do anything either. It's only when people start using it widely that it starts to have an effect. And what's happened now with some of these innovations that have been around for a while have got to the point where they're much easier to use. Um, and so therefore, companies and individuals are starting to apply these things. So I don't know if, you, if you've got children who use chat GPTs to cheat on their essays, but um, you know, there's, I'll give them that as a women's school example, but, but there's already things that are happening which are speeding things up or creating the ability to do things that weren't possible to be done before. So we think because we're closer to that point, then it's conceivable in the next few years, it will really start to affect productivity, 
which basically not just means we can do more and improves the quality, and it's, it, it kind of generates growth as you find you can create and do new interesting things that you didn't do before, but it also keeps the pressure down on on uh, prices because all of a sudden there's just you know you just need less to produce the same amount. Do raise your hand if you've got a question as well. Um, by the way, do we have Annette Thurgood in the room? There you are. You sent in hundreds of questions. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was like it was it went on forever. It was like I can't. Like I know. Yes. Well, there's a, there's a lot to ask, but we had to boil it down. So the question of yours that we pulled out was. What do the markets think about the election whenever it happens? Does a potential Labour government fill them with confidence? And what does the market think of Rachel Reeves? I'm going to ask you, Andy, and then I'm going to ask Mike. <laughs> let's ask Mike first. All right, let's ask Mike first. So, so in the, let's take the UK. Um, you will notice, imagine that you are... Um, you're um, at a, at a sh you're in, in the US, you're in Texas, you're, in, you're inside this great big hall, and you've got a gun. And you and you're, you're going to shoot at a target. And then, and then the target, the target, and let's say the target is is the policies of the UK Labour. And that target is, as each month goes by, getting smaller and smaller. In other words, the commitments that are being made that are meaningfully different from what is currently policy are shrinking. So, what you're left to work out for yourself is. What are their instincts about what they're going to do? Um, how might them being in power change how they look at the world? So it's like you, you know, um, you take over a company, but you don't really know the state of the company until you look at the bank balance or you look at the conditions. So I think it's kind of tough to divine a lot. There will be, of course, some changes in priorities and preferences. Because of that, you're not looking at a radical change to how things uh, operate in terms of the levers governments can pull. That would really affect your investments. Is my view. Andy, what do you think? I think it's quite interesting because the last election wasn't done on economic policy. It was done on one slogan, get Brexit done. And we had no understanding of what the Conservatives would do economically. Um, from what I can see of Labour or the Tories, no one's actually said what they'll do economically in the next election. So we're guessing. So when somebody gets in, and I think the difference is we haven't got a very socialist, from what it appears, Labour Prime Minister. He appears quite centrist. So I don't think there'll be a dramatic difference. But they haven't told us what they're going to do. But that doesn't mean either party won't do something drastic. But I think in America we know what Trump will do. Trump will actually go and benefit businesses that he's invested in or he owns. He won't really give a damn about the economy, but he'll give a damn about his economic interests. Over here, there isn't been anything stated. And I think both parties will probably say very little and hope to get elected. So it's very difficult to judge anymore what they're going to do because the last election had no economic content. It's Kev Lazel here. Kev, you get the last question. Oh, it's a very good one. They like this one because it was deep and weird. Yeah, it's about, <laughs> it's about Bitcoin. If the government ever introduced a central bank digital currency, i.e. its own version of Bitcoin, how would this affect the world of trading and investing? One thing we do know, they'd bloody call it Britcoin, wouldn't they? And it'd be really annoying. Yeah. What would happen if they were to, in, to launch this yeah. novel thing? Well, I think the way it would work is it would be a, you know, it would be a substitute for the existing monetary system we've got. So let's just say, for example, you swap pounds and pence for this. For that to work, it needs to be very stable because you don't want the number of pints that you can buy to change between when you get up from the table and when you get to the bar. 
And so that's the challenge at the moment. So one key ingredient of, um, of, of money is that stability. So I think um, the second is the accessibility is changing. So it's clearly coming out of the shadows. It, it's still unfortunately subject to manipulation and, and is not controllable. And because you can create similar sorts of uh, assets, then although you might say, oh, well, there's a limit on how much of this particular crypto could be increased, when you allow for all the things that could be subst crypto substitutes for it, all of a sudden there is not control over supply. And you need control over money supply for money to work. So at the moment, it's kind of not really fulfilling the basic requirements of money for us to use it. It could be used for other purposes, but it can't really be used for that purpose at the moment. I just like the idea of standing at the bar waiting for my phone to finish mining the price of my pint. <laughs> you know, being very, very, very tedious. The, the last question of the lot, which also comes from Kev, actually, and it's for you, Andy. What does your day look like when you're investing on our behalf? Obviously, you get up in the morning, you have a bowl of gruel with cold water, because you're saving the money, all for the customers. Well, what is your day like when you're investigating? Investing and investigating. Well, if you ask Joan, Sarah, and Chris, it's remarkably different to what mine is. So we all work on different floors. They work on the top floor, and I have a really nice couch in my office, so they can't see me having afternoon snooze, thinking about what's going on in the world. Now, my day is generally contacting people, just trying to phone people, make sense of what's going on and then relaying it in a way that makes sense because there is a lot of complex theories out there and a lot of the investment strategies do look complicated but one of the things I like doing is reading the reports that Mike sends or Dan or Mark sends and you read them and trying to convey it because my first job was as a teacher and actually what we're trying to do is teach people so that when they get to retirement they don't run out of money and it's to make them make sensible decisions so it's trying to make the jargon makes sensible, makes sense, but also convey it in a way that people can actually understand how to save and why to save and what it's about. And that's really my job. And I listen to the experts like Mike and see what he thinks. Very good. Well, thank you very much to Mike. My pleasure. I've got one final quote from Jonathan Swift for you, the man for whom this pub is named. He once said, no man will take counsel but every man will take money. Therefore, money is better than council. <laughs> Correct? I can't say anything to disagree. But, but council gets me money, therefore. You were wrong, Jonathan Swift. Terribly wrong. Thanks, everybody, for coming. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you.